1: the men of the city, they all understood that Shechem had a dog in this fight. (laughs) He was in love with Dinah, okay? But the men in the city were not in love with Dinah, okay? So, you know, their natural response was, well, what's in it for us? I mean, you know, we know that Shechem's fallen in love with Dinah, and he's undergone circumcision for her, but we're not getting Dinah, and circumcision is a pretty painful proposition here for us just so that, you know, Shechem can marry this 13-year-old girl, We like Shechem, but us being circumcised, that's a pretty costly wedding present. So Hamor and Shechem, they really drove on the fact that everything that Jacob has will be yours. And so Hamor and Shechem were successful. That's amazing. In verse 24, it says, Unto Hamor and Shechem, and the son hearkened all that went out of the gate of the city. Now watch these words. Hearkened all that went out of the gate of the city. What does it say? His city and every male was circumcised of the gate of his city, his city, his city. It's a very important word there. Now, first of all, there's a very important word, which is the word hearkened, hearkened. That's the Hebrew word, very important word for us, shema. That's a very special word, shema, because that's the word that God uses to call Israel in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the shema. And where God says, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, and then it says Jehovah, anyway. So God is calling Israel to hear, to listen, and he uses the word Shema. So, but what does Shema mean? Shema just doesn't mean to, you know, understand or get the knowledge of. There's an implication with Shema. It means to listen, to obey because of trust. Shema means to listen, to apply what you hear because of trust, Shema means to listen, to jump in, to act because of trust. Shema really expresses this kind of readiness to act, as soon as I hear, because of trust. That's why Shema's our word. Shema's a Christian's word. Because for believers, when we read the Bible, we open the Bible and we say, Shema. You know what she's meaning to say, I want to know so I can incorporate into my life because I trust. I trust God. You know, when we open the Bible, we say, Shema, because I'm so full of readiness to obey because I trust God. Shema means much more than just here. I mean, that's how it's translated in Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Israel, hero Israel. But Shema means a readiness. And the readiness is really the closest word that we have in the New Testament to Shema, which is in Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. That's it. All readiness of mind, that's Shema. And in 2 Corinthians 8.11, where it says, Now therefore perform the thing of doing it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also of that which you have. That's it. Readiness to will, that's Shema. So Shema has incorporated into its meaning this concept of, of course, hearing, but hearing with a readiness to act based on a trust. So in verse 24, they had convinced the men of the city to the point that they, Shema, heard Hamor and Shechem. They were ready to be circumcised because they trusted Hamor and Shechem. But then, as we pointed out here in verse 24, twice the phrase is, all that went out of the gate of his city. See, unto Hamor and Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. Every meal was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. See, the gate of his city. It's like Hamar and Shechem are right there at the gate of the city and saying to every man going through the gate of the city, You like my city? You, know, you like my city? Do you like my city? You see the man over there with the knife? He's waiting for you. You're next. All right, <laughs> won't take a minute, won't hurt at all, but not that bad. So as verse 24 says, every male was circumcised. Now, there was a particular timing of what this slaughter to, <laughs> took place in verse 25. It says here, it came to pass on the third day, third day, that they were sore. Weren't they sore on the first day? <laughs> okay, the two of this. okay, this is important. Why is the third day spoken of as being sore? Because they'd be pretty sore after the operation, I don't remember. I was seven days old, but you know, eight days. I was eight days old, yeah, sorry. Um, oh, so why is the third day? Okay, there's a preparation that is essential for this type of operation. And we can be sure the sons of Jacob didn't tell the Hivites to do this, the certain It's the antiseptic preparation. You know, that area for an uncircumcised person has the most bacteria of any external part of the body. It's just a culture house of bacteria. So it's essential, because collection and so forth, it's essential to use a sterilant, like alcohol, to kill the microbes before you do this operation. And if that antiseptic preparation is not done, there is a huge inoculation of microbes into the body during the operation. That's what happened here. That's what happened to the Hivites. They became so severely infected Because there was no antiseptic preparation, that after three days, the microbes had just completely overwhelmed the immune system. So the fever is raging. I mean, think of the worst flu that you've ever had, and then multiply times 10, okay, where you can't get out of bed, much less pick up a sword to defend yourself. Easy kill that's the reason for the timing of the third day, that's why you say to yourself, how could two guys with a sword kill a whole community of men, that's why, because they were able to do this, because there was no resistance, and that's how they were able to kill him, and take Dinah out of Shechem's house, and then we read something very shameful in verse 27 through 29, this is very, very shameful, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, spoiled the city, because they had defiled their sister, they took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, and that which is in the city, and that which was in the field, and all their wealth, and their all their little ones, and their wives took the captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. They ransacked. So this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable that they spoiled the city. They took the sheep and the oxen. They took the donkeys, whatever possessions they had in the house and outside the city in the fields. They took it all and everything. This is incredible. Not only did they take the wealth, they took the wives and the children. That means they put them into their captivity. I mean, in their homes, they had the wives of the husbands they murdered and the children of the fathers they murdered. So that every day, those wives and those children would have to look at the men who murdered their husbands and their fathers. That sure makes for a happy home, sweet home, doesn't it? I mean, this is I don't want to be any more graphic about this. But just to drive this horrible situation home, just imagine that one day one of the sons says to a captive's wife, how are you today? How's she going to reply? How am I today? You murdered my husband. You murdered the father of my children. You murdered my sons. You want to know how I am today? You stink. That's how I am. Which is Jacob's comment in verse 30. You made me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. Now, this spoiling of all the wealth and the animals is so shameful for the Jewish people that when the Jewish people killed their enemies in the book of Esther, they were very careful to not repeat this. This was not going to happen. So in Esther 9.10, when they killed Haman and his sons, it says the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Amadathah, the enemy of the Jews, slew they, but on the spoil laid there not their hand. Other Gentiles, in, take the stuff, that's fine, no Jew and in Esther 9, 15 through 16, it says, for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day also of the month of Adar, they slew 300 men of Shushan, but on the prey, they laid not their hand. All that's available? Gentiles run in and get it? Jews, no. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives, and they had rest from their enemies, and they slew of their foes 70 and 5,000, book of Esther, and they laid not their hands on the prey. Why all this emphasis in the book of Esther? Because of what happened in Genesis 34. The Jewish people so distanced themselves from what Levi and Simeon did that when they had the chance to do it again and to take the spoil and the prey and Esther's deliverance, they didn't put a hand to anything, which shows a complete repudiation of what was done in Genesis 34, which now leads us to the question, why? Why did all this horrible thing happen and what are the lessons that we can learn from this chapter for our lives? And that takes us now to an analysis of this chapter. What went so horribly wrong to result in such a great tragedy? You know, looking back over the history, we could see clues of what went wrong. We see a clue in verse 7. The sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved. And then it says, and they were very wroth. Very they were they were hot. They were flaming hot. They were boiling because they had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought to be done. See, the words they were wroth tells us that they were angry. This is anger. Well, of course, it's anger. And what we must learn from this chapter is what happens when sinful anger is allowed to progress. Sinful anger. Okay? That's an important term, sinful anger. Now, we can see three times the justification or the fueling of their sinful anger. See, in, in verse 7, we, they, it's always this word because. In verse 7, because he had wrought folly in Israel and lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to, to be done, okay? So now we're, we're talking about the development of sinful anger here. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered and uh, Hamor and Shechem, his father, deceitfully and said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. See, the horrible deceit, was because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And then in verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, so this is another horrible thing we just talked about, and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. So the horrible spoiling of the sister was because they defiled the sister. The horrible deceit was because they defiled the sister. The terrible anger that burned up, because of that. So we see something about anger. It burns hot, and it'll melt reason. It'll burn so hot that it will melt logic, it burns so hot that it will blind the eyes to reality. Notice when anger was heating up in verse 13, they said Shechem had defiled their sister. That was true. But anger gets so hot, it gets hotter and hotter that it distorts the reality, it takes reality away. So in verse 27, they said, because they had defiled their sister, meaning all the men that they killed defiled their sister hey, you just left reality, pal. Anger has just blinded you to reality. These sons are now out of their mind. The men of the city probably never even knew Dinah, much less participated in her defilement. But anger took their ability to see away. And if you ask them, they would say, all the men defiled Dinah. That's what happened. And then notice when Jacob told them that they were wrong, in the last part of the chapter here, their response is, the last verse of the chapter Verse 31, they said, should he deal with our sisters with a harlot? Well, reality check, okay? You know, fact check. Shechem mistreated Dinah, but he never mistreated her like a harlot. Shechem was not dealing with Dinah as a harlot. He was trying to marry her. He was trying to deal with her as a wife. But if you ask them, they would say, no, he treated her like a prostitute. Anger had gotten so hot here, it had taken away their reason. It created its own reality. They could pass a lie detector test. But what we've seen in this chapter is how much damage sinful anger is able to do. Is this applicable to us? Anybody here ever been angry before? (laughs) How many of you have ever said anything in anger or done something in anger and wish you hadn't said it? How many of you are being honest? (laughs) All right. Now, we need to understand What the Bible says about sinful anger, or anger, let's just say anger, in order for us to learn from this. Okay, you want to turn to Proverbs 19.11? Proverbs 19.11 is a very valuable verse about anger. Because here in this verse by the man of wisdom, Solomon, who was a man of peace, you know, shalom, uh, uh, man of peace, shalom, man. He wrote this, the discretion, and now he's talking about something called discretion the discretion of a man deferreth his anger and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. So we have some words here. Discretion, deferreth, pass over. Now, the word deferreth in this verse is telling us that there is a time to express anger. By the way, all anger is not bad. Sinful anger is, is sinful. You know, it's bad. But it's telling us that there is a time to express anger, but it is very important, and we need what the Bible calls discretion. Another word for defereth is to put off or to wait. So if you apply that to this verse in 1911, it comes out like this. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. The discretion of a man makes him postpone the anger, and it is glory to pass over his transgression. Some anger is sinful, and we need to understand when anger is sinful. Anger is not always bad, but sin that results from anger, sinful to anger is sinful, it's bad. And this is brought out, and if you, whatever you want to do. But anyway, Ephesians 4.26 says this, 4.26 to 27. Paul says, be ye angry and sin not. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Now, what we have here in this chapter They were angry, they sinned, they they didn't stop with their wrath, and they gave tremendous place to the devil. So when it says, be ye angry, it's saying, angry's not bad. Anger's not bad. But when it says, sin not, that means sin that results from anger is not good, or sinful anger is not good. And then when it says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, that means, do not let anger create wrath. Wrath is retribution wrath is vengeance wrath is above our pay scale okay that's not in our realm god is the one who takes wrath god is the one who takes vengeance god is the one who takes retribution and the sons of jacob when they did that sinful anger they let the sun go down on the anyways their anger boiled and boiled until they took vengeance it was not wrong now hear me out on this, it was not wrong for the sons of Jacob to be angry over the defilement of Dinah, but they needed to be angry over the sin and not over the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. See, the Lord Jesus Christ showed anger. He showed anger when he drove the money changers out of the temple. That was pretty angry. He says there in John 2, 14 through 16, that he, he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changes of money. And when he made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and then the sheep and the oxen and overturned the tables. This was a big scene, overthrew their tables and said unto them that sold the doves take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So the Lord Jesus Christ was angry. He was angry with religious hypocrisy too. In Mark 3, 2, When they brought on this man with the withered hand, it says they watched him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. That made him angry. He saith unto the man which had the withered hand stand forth, he saith unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored and holds the state. Now listen, anger is a valuable emotion. He had a valuable emotion. The sons of Jacob had a valuable emotion. The sons of Jacob used their steam in their engine, their valuable emotion, to kill people. That was sinful. The Lord Jesus Christ used that valuable emotion of anger as the steam in his engine to heal someone. That would be good. Now, Paul, when he came into the city of Athens, he saw the city given over to idols. He was angry. It says in Acts 17, 16, in the King James, it says, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. That means anger. When he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry, the Amplified Version puts it like this. Now, while Paul was awaiting them at Athens, his spirit was grieved and roused to anger as he saw that the whole city was full of idols. Why was Paul angry? Because of the power of idolatry to cheat the Lord Jesus Christ, out of the worship and love and adoration that he deserved. You know, when I was asked one time in Japan by, you know, some, sometimes I'm asked when I was asked in Japan, sometimes have the Japanese businessmen, would we'd have some free time, and they'd say, oh, would you like to go visit our temples? And I smiled, and I said, no, because I hate your temples. <laughs> and they're like, what? No, why do you hate our temples? Because I care about the Japanese people. I care about the Japanese people, so I hate your temples. Because your temples are misleading the Japanese people away from God, who's the only one who can save them from destruction, so I am angry when I go into a Japanese temple. I don't want to go to your temples. When Proverbs 19:11 says that the discretion of a man disfurth his anger, it means that there is a time when anger must be suppressed, as what the sons of Jacob should have done. But this is what the Bible means when it says in James 1:19 through20 wherefore my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God see in those verses the word wrath that's the same word as anger so what this is saying is that we need to give the go-ahead to hearing and put the brakes on speaking in anger because usually anger comes out in what you say first because the anger of man will not achieve the righteousness of God now what the sons of Jacob did was they brought great dishonor to God. Great dishonor to God. And we can see in this chapter 34, when anger is sinful, we get the clues here of what is sinful anger in chapter 34. What we can see in Genesis 34 is that anger is sinful when it goes beyond the cause. Beyond the cause. See, we saw that when they went beyond the cause to say that all the men of Shechem were responsible for defiling Dinah and how Shechem treated Dinah like a prostitute, anger is always sinful when it goes beyond the cause. And what we can see in Genesis 34 is that anger is sinful when it is against a person rather than against a sin. See, the focus of the anger of the sons of Jacob was not on the sin of Dinah's defilement, but it was focused on Shechem, And anger that's focused on a person is always sinful. And what we can see from Genesis 34 is that anger is sinful when it comes along with a desire for revenge. In Romans 12, 9, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. In other words, God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. When the Bible says, avenge not yourselves, it means we are never to take our own revenge. And you can see in Genesis 34 how the sons kept saying, our sister, our sister, our sister, like throwing fuel into a fire, to the point where they took revenge for what was done to our sister. Anger is always sinful when it leads to taking personal revenge. Anger is sinful when it is cherished and it grows getting hotter and hotter with reflection. This is what the sons of Jacob did. In chapter 34, the more they reflected on the offense, the more their anger grew and their anger that grows with reflection is always sinful. Anger is sinful when it has an unforgiving spirit that results in bitterness, which is why the Bible says that bitterness with anger, you've got to replace that in Ephesians 4.30. It says, it's very interesting. Do you want to turn to that? You can turn to that. Ephesians 4.30-32, it's very important. It says there, it's talking about several, and it's interesting to see the topics that are brought together in uh, Ephesians four thirty through 32. First topic is the Holy Spirit in verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Second topic in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, no, bitterness, second subject, Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And, verse 32, be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So notice bitterness, wrath, anger, package it up, put it in the trash.
0: Do you believe God created the heavens and the earth? Then come celebrate Creation Day on Saturday, November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. This is a Christian family festival event with games, rides, contest prizes, fair food, petting, zoos, animal shows, super science experiments for kids, plus life-size dinosaurs at our brand new Dinosaur Gardens exhibit, plus world-renowned speakers Rick Comfort, Tom Cantor, Eric Hoven, Jay Seegert, and more. Free admission to the museum and all speaking engagements are free for your family and their entire church family. The Creation and Earth History Museum is located off Highway 67 and Woodside Avenue North in Santee next to the Santee Drive-In. Bring your family and friends Saturday, November 5th and strengthen your faith at Creation Day, San Diego's Christian Family Festival event. For more information, call 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104 or creationSD.org. CreationSD.org.